the Apostle Paul was a brother who really knew God. He knew the triune God. He was constituted with the triune God in a very real sense in his ministry as God's representative. He was the acting God. Our brother in his ministry introduced this term and we're pleased at the appropriate time to, to use it. In the Old Testament, Samuel was the acting God. And in the New Testament, Paul became the acting God. In someone who represents God in the way of fostering the church, that one must know God in a particular way, not only as the Savior, not only as the Lord, but as the Father. We desperately need brothers and sisters who really know the Father according to the picture of the Ark of Noah in the Old Testament. There are three levels, three stories in the Ark. And these three stories signify the Spirit. The Spirit brings us to the Son, and the Son brings us to the Father. This is similar to what we have in Ephesians 2. Uh, in Him, through one Spirit, we have access to the Father. To know the Father is to know Him as the unique source of all things. And to know the Father is to know Him as the unique goal of all things. So Paul concludes chapter 11 of Romans with a praise out from Him and through Him and unto Him are all things. So when Paul, knowing the Father, said he was an exhorting Father, consoling and testifying, you see exhibited in his person the attributes of the real Father. And in his fostering function, Paul as the spiritual father of the whole church. It's interesting that he identified the church as being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul, in his fostering function, was burdened for the inner being of his children, that the basic structure of the Christian life would be organically constituted into them and be lived out so that there would be, with respect to faith, the work of faith, with respect to love, the labor of love, and we, with respect to hope, the endurance of hope. We 
may or may not come back to this point, so I better mention it now, lest I forget or I just not have the liberty to speak it. The outstanding and first characteristic of a genuine apostle is endurance. You, you read the verses. It's endurance. We may think it's the power to raise the dead or this or that necessary function. But it's endurance. And the New Testament speaks significantly of endurance such as in Hebrews 12. Can you recall what Hebrews 12 says about endurance? You run with endurance the race set before us. And when John the Apostle at an advanced age was in exile because of the word of God, he's, he called himself John your brother, your companion in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the endurance in Jesus. So, I'm here tonight as your companion in the endurance in Jesus. And to that church which fulfills God's economy, the church in Philadelphia, the Lord said, you have kept the word of my endurance. Caring for the church deeply and intrinsically requires a lot of endurance. The enemy will do this and that and try this and that to wear us out, to wear us down, to exhaust us, to deplete us. Yet we have an inexhaustible endurance. But there is a base for endurance. Just as there is a factor for work and a characteristic of labor, there is a basis for endurance. And that's hope. So 1 Thessalonians 1.3 speaks of the work of faith, the labor of love, and the endurance of hope. So because we have faith, we work. And because we have love, we labor. And because we have hope, we endure. In caring for our children that become growing and grown sons and daughters, we need faith that works. We need love that labors. And we need hope that endures. I don't know when was the last time, if there ever was a last time, when I gave a message on hope. Have you ever heard a message focused on hope? I remember parts of one. But tonight we're on the development of hope. And late this afternoon and early this evening, uh, I was almost desperate asking the Lord, what, what shall we 
speak tonight. I know I had the outline, but what shall we speak tonight? And I think I know. We'll, we'll see. But I'd like to fellowship with you concerning what the Bible reveals regarding hope. And because we're human and human beings need hope, and because we are in a certain culture that induces certain hopes, we have maybe a natural concept of what hope is. So I thought it would be good if I would go to the dictionary to get something more definite. And I'm glad I did. And I'd like to read you a definition of hope as a noun and then hope as a verb and then we'll give a certain basic definition of hope according to the Bible then we'll read some verses then we'll go to the outline so I said noun first right okay and I'll read it more than once Hope is desire accompanied by expectation or of belief in fulfillment. So this is not just a wish. Oh, I, I, I hope this happens, meaning I wish or I dream. Hope is a desire. And that a desire is accompanied by expectation or a belief in fulfillment. When you have your first child and that child just comes forth, the birth of that child entails all kinds of hope in the parent. But as the child grows and has experiences, and you have experiences with the child, I would say the hope becomes adjusted, doesn't it? It becomes adjusted. And uh, it does, I'm not saying we, we are in despair, but, you know, it becomes adjusted by the reality of human existence when we find out what the capabilities of this child are, what the temperament and disposition of the child are, all kinds of things. But hope begins with, with life and is accompanied by life. So all parents have desires accompanied by expectations or belief in fulfillment. And I would like to suggest to you that we need to be really open to the Lord that we not nurse baseless hope for ourselves or anyone. But it's human to have a desire accompanied by expectation or by a belief in fulfillment. But in caring for the saints in various stages of life, uh, this is very relevant. I'll just give you 
in general terms, a case. Here are two adult sisters, late 20s, early 30s, not married. Now there is a real battle concerning hope. They've completed their college, then they went to the full-time training, perhaps with the thought, God owes me, God will surely do for me. And then they graduate from the training and nothing happens immediately. Then they get their advanced degrees and nothing happens eventually. Here is a human being. You know one thing I've learned about sisters? They're all women. (laughs) Why do I say that? I say that, and you can say, what have you learned about brothers? They're all men. That's fair. Why do I say that? I say that to remind us of our humanness. Of our humanness. When we became a brother or a sister, we did not cease to be human and no longer have human feelings or desires or expectations. So I'm not sure what to say to a sister, 28, 29, 30. I spoke with one yesterday, and I had a little more faith. She's 31. And I don't know if I've ever said this, but I said it to her, and now I'm responsible. I said, you will definitely be married. I refuse to accept anything else in your case. That's my heart. I was very considerate because there's a sister in this room who's not only a wife but a mother of more than one child and X number of years ago in the 80s we had some fellowship and I was radically neutral. I had no liberty to say anything because we, we hope in the Lord but we do not want to nourish just something natural concerning which we have no basis other than our opinion. But there is the need for hope, and in human beings there is a desire with expectation or belief in fulfillment. Then the verb, it's very close, to hope is to cherish a desire with expectation of fulfillment. Oh, you cherish it. You may have a baby in your heart. That's your cherished hope. I was troubled temporarily, but I was troubled when Brother Lee was ministering. This is over 20 years ago. He said, you're disappointed. Do you know why you're disappointed? It's because you're in yourself. And being in myself, when I heard that word about myself, I was not happy to hear. I thought disappointment means something deep. That that, that means, you know, that counts. But then I got some light. Many, many times we're disappointed because the self generates an expectation, a desire. So I... 
An able young brother seemingly comes into the Lord's recovery in his 20s. and Today he's cleaning the restrooms or he's serving with the children, but in his heart he says, restrooms today, elder's office tomorrow. <laughs> That's a desire with an expectation. Now, now we're, we're facing a situation in a certain place. How we'll, we'll handle it? I don't know. I'm not surprised, but I'm not disappointed. And I'm not cynical. But you, you have a church raised up, and then saints go, and many of them are middle-aged. And some of them, this may be their last hope to be in the lead. And when some brothers, I'm just illustrating this, realize it's not going to happen if an eldership is being formed and doesn't include me, some of them will come up with a strong concept. There shouldn't be any eldership in this church. If I can't be it, no one will be it. Because there is a hope that doesn't come from eternal life. It isn't based on the truth. It's not something that's rooted in God. You have just generated it. So if we are to have a development of our living hope, we need the light to show us what desires we're cherishing. I have seen saints and I'm still observing at least one situation where saints are hoping and believing and praying and, ex and expecting for something that has no basis in reality whatever. Then this is really hard. As humans, we need to hope, but I don't feel I can foster a hope that your son will be a better golfer than Tiger Woods, <laughs> that your daughter will win the Nobel Prize for literature. This is all alien to me. That we need to minister hope, we need to foster hope, but it has to be the kind of hope described in the Bible. And that hope is versus almost all the values of the world. Almost all the values. So now for a general definition of hope according to the Scriptures, it is a favorable and confident expectation. Hope in the Bible involves expectation. Expectation. Not just wishing, but an expectation of blessing, an expectation of glory, an expectation related to the Lord's coming. My wife's mother, my mother-in-law, is long deceased, 
But one thing we struggled with was trying to have a harmonious relationship with her was one of her common edicts. She was a strong person and she would come up with this, I have the right to expect. Is there such a right in the Constitution? The right of expectancy? I have the right to expect you to do this. I have the right to expect you to become this. I not only expect, I claim the rights of expectancy. And my wife really needed the Lord's shepherding and the Lord's healing to recover from the tyranny of that kind of expectation. Instead of letting the Lord shine on us and we hope for what God hopes for. And we expect what God expects. Of course, we're not dealing on the outward human side of education and this and that. Of course, on a human level, you hope for the best education and the best this and that. This is proper. But it's outside, outside the sphere of God's economy. But Paul was burdened that the saints have hope. And he was burdened to foster their hope and he linked the hope to endurance and to the Lord's coming. Now I want to read some verses that will lead up to the outline, then we'll go through the outline. And I not only hope, I have a desire with expectation that you'll have ample time to share tonight. Not because the meeting will go to midnight, but because we'll just balance the time. I'd like to read a few verses, powerful verses on hope. First is Romans 8, verses 24 and 25. For we were saved in hope. We were saved in hope. But a hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await it through endurance. Do you know what I've been doing for much of my life? How much of my life? I don't know. Waiting. A lot of life consists in waiting, awaiting something, something not yet, something you hope to be or hope to have happen. And Paul says we eagerly await it through endurance. And surely this hope is related to the glorification of our body to the full sonship. The New Testament does not foster your hope in the affluence of your children. The New Testament does not foster a human hope in world peace. According to Thessalonians, when the world says peace, safety, that is the speaking of the drunken ones at night. The New Testament doesn't foster 
your hope in financial security. It only fosters hope in the consummation of God's economy and of God's organic salvation. The apostles' teaching does not foster earthly material hope. It doesn't. This doesn't mean that as humans we have no hope for better health or no hope to ever be able to own a home. This is human. What I'm saying is we cannot foster that. We have no basis to foster that, to preach prosperity, to preach material security. What is our basis? How can we do that? The entire teaching concerning hope in the New Testament is in God himself and in the Lord's coming. Now, now chapter 15 of Romans, verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this expression, the God of hope. Our hope is God. Our hope is Christ. Our future is the triune God. And the God of hope fills us with joy and peace in believing so that we may abound in hope. And uh, we need this. We need the proper hope or we have no way to endure. I'd like to read you now a hymn. I can't recall when I was with saints and sang this hymn the last time. It's a hymn by Brother Lee. It's in the section on comfort in trials. I don't think we'll, we'll sing it, but I'd like to read it to you. Hymn 708. Fresh as the dew of the morning, bringing a sweet rest unheard. Christ in the gentle anointing whispers his comforting word. Stand till the trial is over. Stand till the tempest is gone. Stand for the glory of Jesus. Stand till the kingdom is won. The chorus, Lord of all hope, oh, how sweet is thy voice, making my heart in thy presence rejoice. The lovely hymn. Second stanza, if in the test of my trouble faint be my spirit and heart, Faith with the star of hope glimmering shall all be taken apart. May then thy faith with thy life power over me hold its full sway that all thy riches of glory now I may share and for a. And I'd like to read the chorus each time. Lord of all hope, 
Oh, how sweet is thy voice, making my heart in thy presence rejoice. Then the last stanza. Lord, as the morning sun dawning, chase all my darkness away. And with thy kind wings of healing, turn all my night into day. Come thou, O come, Lord of comfort. Come to my sad, weary heart. Come, O thou blessed hope of glory. Never, O never, depart. We need this. There are times when we will all need this. I'll never forget that afternoon in 1981 after Brother Lee had found out that our young brother had been killed, a young brother. And he called me and asked me to go with him, to take him to the home of that family. And we sat down in the living room and then he began to speak about him 720 God is not promised skies always blue and we read it and then he said could we sing this song and so we sang the chorus but God has promised right but God has promised strength for the day. God has promised unfading sympathy, undying love. What was this? This was the fostering of hope in a most desperate human situation. We do not want our sons and daughters exposed prematurely to this suffering which we call human life. But eventually, in all of our situations, there will be the dark times, the unbelievably dismal times. And that is not the time to talk of faith. That is not even the time to speak of love. That is the time to minister hope that enables you to endure sometimes not just one day at a time but one hour at a time and we just get through. The church in Thessalonica was born in the midst of very hostile persecution. Paul was driven out of the city he was forced to leave. From the very beginning, the church was opposed and attacked. And he had to leave that baby church in that kind of environment. But he left them with hope, with the endurance of hope. From the very beginning, they had not only the work of faith and the labor of love, but a hope that gave them endurance. A couple more verses on the practicality of this. 
from a very practical book, 1 Timothy. And in chapter 5, Paul is talking about widows. At what point should a widow be enrolled and cared for by the church? And in verse 10 of chapter 5, no, not in verse 10. Uh, let me look. I'm looking for the verse which uh, says, oh yes, here it is, verse 5. Now she who is really a widow and is left alone has set her hope on God. We need saints who set their hope on God continues in petitions and prayers night and day he contrasts this with Paul's word in chapter 6 verse 17 charge those who are rich in the present age not to be high minded nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who affords us all things richly for our enjoyment. Do you know what scares me to death? Is that our children will grow up in a kind of culture in which you've got Christ and the church and California and a nice affluent, American way of life. That's the recovery. Christ and the church and California and MBAs and high salaries and stock options. There is a promising young couple. They said, sure, when we finish our education, we're coming to the training. But then there were the school loans, and then there were the high salaries, and then there were the stock options. I wonder if they'll ever make it. I'd like to ask them, what's your hope set on? What the Supreme Court, or whatever court, will ultimately rule concerning Bill Gates and Microsoft? Is your hope in the NASDAQ? that it will pull, pull out of this dip? Probably it will until it really plunges during the tribulation. <laughs> he says, don't set your hope on uncertain riches. What are we communicating? What are we communicating to our children? Where do we set our hope? So Paul wanted to impress us that we need a hope. Human beings have to have a hope. But our hope is in God. And he even says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Jesus Christ is our hope. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is your hope of glory. 1 Peter 1.3, we were regenerated unto a living hope. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready, sanctifying the Lord in your hearts always to give an account of the hope that is in you. Has anyone ever been asked to give an account for the hope that's in you? That you're in this kind of situation, yet there's a hope, and some interested party asks, 
would you explain to me how you can hope? According to Matthew 6, one of the characteristics of the kingdom people is they're not ruled by anxiety. And the Lord Jesus used the grain measure, an economic unit, and said no one lights his lamp and puts it under this grain measure, this bushel. And what that means is if you're a kingdom person, the light of your testimony won't be dimmed by your anxiety over finance. But in this country, how bright is the Christian testimony? Is there an anti-testimony? How many lamps are under bushels? Covered over by anxiety in the name of practicality. I had to educate three. I spent more than my share of times in emergency rooms. Everybody had major surgery. And I consider this kind of common. I know the practicality. But I would like to assure you in the Lord's mercy. I did not give my children a mixed message about what I live for. Philip was only three months old when I began to serve full time. David was four. Becky was six. I never tried to cultivate in them an expectation of a life of ease but neither were we religious. My wife would not tolerate a husband being religious. So, no being religious, I believe quite human. They can get their education, learn to manage money, exercise every day to take care of your health, eat properly, and live for God's kingdom. Live for God's economy. Don't live for this age. We may say, Amen. We want to develop faith. Do the works of faith. Amen. Develop love. Have the labor of love. Now we're talking about the whole view of our future. What in fact we live for. What is our hope? What is our goal? This is, let me put it this way, what we put into the children will be, the act, will be actually what we are in fact living for. What really is the governing matter day by day. If I boast, I boast only in the Lord's mercy. But the kids learned when necessary this family moves. This family migrates. This family's not rooted on the earth. This family lives in a tent. This family has an altar in front of the tent. And we took family trips. We did all kinds of family things. I went on a white rafting excursion on three rivers and 
Tennessee and North Carolina. I got dumped with my son, Philip. I did the, the dad things because I'm a dad, and that's what dads do. I went to soccer games. I missed a group meeting to go to Texas Stadium to see David play in the playoffs. I'm a dad like any other dad, but it's all linked to God's economy. It's all linked to God's kingdom. And however the daughter and the sons choose to go ultimately, they will know what was fostered in them by their radical parents, by their unrealistic, impractical, non-pragmatic parents who moved to Detroit, to Chicago, to Irving, to Anaheim, and who knows what's coming. Why? Because our hope is not, is not in finally paying off a home mortgage. Now I won't get another one. I can't bear the thought of 61 getting a 30-year mortgage. So either I have the cash to get it or I'm not getting it. This matter of hope, the expectancy for the future. We have to, and Paul instructed the Thessalonians, to live in what I would call a tension between expecting the Lord's coming and living a very practical, normal human life on the earth. Because some of them got wacko by the time of the second Thessalonians. They stopped working. They said, we don't have to work. Why should we work? We shouldn't have a job. We'll be job-dropping full-timers and eat other people's food. So they're going from house to house eating other people's food. And Paul said, don't feed them. Do not give them anything to eat. If they will not work, they should not eat. That's being disorderly. He's still a brother. But we're not for that. And the Lord himself illustrated two were in the field. Not two were PSRPing or pray reading. Two were in the field. One was taken, the other left. Two were grinding, one was taken, the other left. That means they were engaged in practical human activities, living a normal human life. But there was something in the one in the field that caused him to be taken. There was something in the one grinding that caused her to be taken. And I would submit to you, that thing is hope, a living hope and a realization. I am living here for the Lord's coming and for his kingdom. And in the United States, books on prophecy are such big sellers but where are the Christians really living for the Lord's coming? The one who wrote that late great planet Earth, the Lord only knows what kind of wealth that generated. I don't envy it, but how strange you're waiting to be raptured at the same time you are amassing quite a significant fund. Well, I think this is sufficient. What, what do we hope for? Are you disappointed, middle-aged brothers? Why are you disappointed? Because, and, and sisters, are you disappointed in your husband? 
I had to talk with one of my sons about my not being an elder. He said, would you like me to be an elder? Are you disappointed that I'm not an elder? And he said, yeah, kind of. And I assured him, I am, I am happy doing what I'm doing. Don't have this kind of hope in your dad that you will be this or that after so many years in the church. Just be here. Just serve according to your measure. Don't hope that in a coming migration you'll be in the lead. And don't transfer the hope to your children and live vicariously through them. Well, I couldn't make it, but my son will make it. My daughter will make it. All that is in the natural life. Is it too much to suggest that we can live here simply and normally seeking the kingdom first? Being responsible, being practical, being prudent, taking care of all of our human responsibilities, educating our children, helping them enter into marriage, helping them when they have particular needs, if we're getting older, taking care of our later years so we're not a burden to others, can we do all of these things and not be entangled but really be looking for the coming? Is anybody in the Lord's recovery eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord? Does anybody love His appearing? Paul says, he speaks of loving His appearing. How can we foster hope if we ourselves do not hope in the Lord's coming, desire His coming, want this age to end? In December of 1999, in the winter training, we gave that word on the dispensational instrument. Where did it go? Does anybody want to be the dispensational instrument? Does anybody want this age to end? We're hoping in that. We're hoping to be raptured, to be transfigured, to be glorified, to meet the Lord as the first fruits. So we need our hope to be fostered. We do. Don't think my intention is that we, we should be criticized for not having the hope. We need hope to be fostered and to develop in us so while we are living a normal Christian life, what we are communicating to our children is we have a dual existence. While we're on this earth, we live a practical God-man life, a very human life. We play with you. We read with you. We spend time with you. We go to places with you. You can have memories of growing up in a normal family life in the Lord's recovery. We took care of your health. We took care of your education. We helped you get started in your family life. We did all of these things. But in our hearts, we are absolutely for another realm, for something invisible, for something unseen. That's why we do it all. That's why we exist. That's why you exist. That's why we got married. That's why we have a family. That's why I have a job. That's why I live in this house. That's why I take care of my health. That's why I take care of your education. It's all for the kingdom. It's all for the kingdom of God. Then we are kept from any kind of extreme. All right, let me read through the outline. 
and I'll be done before 8.30. It may seem like eternity, but just hope. And <laughs> you have a living hope that the message will end by 8.30. Because of man's fall, there is no hope for the fallen human race. The only expectation unbelievers have is death. And we have as a verse there, First Timothy, uh, sorry, First Thessalonians, four, thirteen. And Paul says, "But we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who are sleeping, that you would not grieve, even as also the rest who have no hope." He doesn't say, we write this to you so that you would not grieve. How can a human being not grieve over the loss of someone you love? I don't care how much God you have in you. How can you not grieve in a death experience? But Paul said that you would not grieve as the rest as the unbelievers who have no hope. When we grieve, we grieve in hope. Death takes various forms, not only physical death. It can come into a marriage, it can come into a family, it can come to us psychologically. There's a sudden drastic loss, and we grieve. How can we not? I'm still touched by the memory of Brother Lee's grief at the funeral of his co-worker and our brother Abraham Chang. He wasn't there saying, praise the Lord everybody, everything is fine, hallelujah, Christ is victor, death is defeated. Of course, all these things are profoundly true. He wept. He said, I will not see him again. He grieved, but with hope. When you grieve, when I grieve, when any of the saints grieve over their situation, we have to help them grieve in hope. Your marriage has crumbled, your family has shattered, your health has weakened. You have every reason to grieve. And we will grieve with you, but we have hope. And we have the Lord of hope. So Paul wrote to this young church because some of the saints had died. They didn't know how to handle this. And he said, we have a hope. We don't grieve as those who do not have hope. I was reading something today, and in the ancient culture preceding and surrounding the writing of the New Testament. There was no hope. In the philosophies, in the literature, there was no hope. Hope is unique with the Christian faith because we have resurrection and because we have the Lord's coming, we have hope. If you want to minister hope to a saint, you have to minister resurrection because death annihilates all of our dreams, all of our wishes, every cherished desire. Something has come in unexpectedly and it's wiped out. 
How can we hope there needs to be some brother, some sister who can sit on a living room couch with that person and weep and pray in hope? Because resurrection is a reality and the Lord's coming is a certainty. And we are not spared any of the human grief. We're not promised skies always blue. My younger son played soccer several years. Year after year, their team got slaughtered. They just got slaughtered. He was goalie, in a fairly good goalie, but the other team was kicking goal after goal after goal. So even the ref tried to comfort him and saying, You're, you just do your best, you, know, you don't give up. So they really learned how to lose. And the last year they played soccer, I don't know what happened with the combination. They had this powerful team. They were just defeating everybody. And they were undefeated. They met another team that was undefeated. Ha, and my son's team won. God is sovereign. Okay, what I remember, eventually they lost in the playoffs the first round, so we don't hope in that but I, I can still picture the, the boys are about 11 on the losing team they were distraught they were disoriented no kidding they were beside themselves with grief they had never encountered defeat in their whole life well I'm glad that the Lord arranged it for my soccer-playing son to get slaughtered and to have one winning season. One winning season. Because it orients you to the fact that there's a lot of disappointment, there's a lot of defeat, and little by little, we don't become cynical, but we give up our hope in this or that. We give up our expectation. We give up our desire with its certainty. And we only hope in God. Humanly, yes, we, we hope you get into Harvard. Or we hope you get the scholarship. Or we hope this or that. But that's just a human preference. In reality, our hope is God himself. The unbelievers have no hope. And we have hope. As those who believe in Christ, we have a life full of hope. The holy life of the church life is a life with a future. Some teenagers really get hit with depression. They really have to be protected. They have to choose life. They have to know they have a future. We have a future. Well, what is your future? What is your future? Can you say, my future is the all-inclusive Christ? I have a future. Maybe I'll be raptured or maybe I will taste of death. When we conducted the funeral for Ben Brennan, the young brother that was killed, we prophesied over his casket. I stand by that prophecy almost 20 years later because an hour is coming when that grave will open and that casket will open 
and Ben Brenneman will rise from the dead. If you're putting a 12-year-old boy into the ground, you do it in hope. And the hope is in the God of resurrection himself. B, God the Father has, okay, this hope is in the Lord's coming back with resurrection and rapture. God the Father has regenerated us unto a living hope. We have a hope for the future in our sojourning today. Are you a sojourner? Do you know what a sojourner is? It's someone who is a temporary dweller. Are you a sojourner? Is your wife a sojourner? Are you a sojourning family? Is there a sojourning culture in your family? That we live in a tent. Apparently, it's this nice house in Marina Valley where homes at least used to be more affordable than around here. I don't know the situation now. We're a sojourner. And we need hope for our sojourning. This is a hope not of objective things, but of life. See, when we're young and our children, they hope for all kinds of objective things. For a nice car. Remember hearing of one young woman who goal in life was to get a Pontiac Grand Prix. She came from a culture of poverty and she had a concrete physical goal to get a Pontiac Grand Prix. You ever had a lemon, a really bad car? <laughs> so we don't hope in objective things, right? We just don't hope in objective things. But our hope is in eternal life with all the endless divine blessings. The life that we have received through regeneration enables us to have a hope with numerous aspects for this age, for the coming age, and for eternity. What is our hope for this age? You know what my hope is for this age? That I would grow to maturity before I finish my course. That's my personal hope. I hope in the life that's in me that in whatever time the Lord gives me, I would live an overcoming life and grow to maturity and serve as a living member of the body. That's my hope in this age. My hope in the coming age is that I would be counted among the overcoming ones to be one of the many co-kings. Isn't that your hope? And my hope for eternity, this is a sure thing, is to have eternal, blissful, unimaginable enjoyment of the process and consummated triune God with hundreds of millions of glorified saints from all the ages who have now been built up together to become the new Jerusalem. It's really a bright future. But I hope in life right now. I used to be in despair over my disposition, complaining to the Lord that I was genetically programmed to be such a weird person. <laughs> but now I do not despair anymore because I believe the divine life in me is no... My disposition is no match for the divine life. So I have, I have hope for all of you. I, I, I mean it. I don't care what kind of person you are, what kind of personality you have, what kind of disposition you are, whether you're shy and ingrown or whatever, you've got the life of God in you, what this life can do when it's free to flow. And when you touch this life in fellowship, 
you have hope for your own going on. We need this. We need it today. But I can't say, surely your health will be better, your marriage will be fine, your children will be perfect, your, your future will be financially secure. I have no basis to say that, but I can say the life in you is able to save you to the uttermost. You should expect to reach maturity before you die. Let this life have a free course in you. Three, Paul was an apostle not, according, not only according to the faith and the knowledge of the truth, but also in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised in eternity. For his apostleship, Paul relied and trusted in the divine life with all its hope. We need hope for our family. We need hope for our children. We need hope for the young people. It's the life within us that gives us hope. I've been communicating via email with somebody, and I realize this person is in despair physically, psychologically, even spiritually, and hope has to be ministered. And I got an email yesterday. The hope is beginning to blossom. Beginning to blossom. But how is someone going to get hope if you don't foster that hope? You impart the hope in them, and then the life activates this hope. And they realize, I have a future. At 30-something, it's not all over. The Lord can still use me. I can still be for God's economy. I have a future in God because I have eternal life in my spirit. But I can't promise this one an easy life. I can't promise you security. I can't promise you any of that. But you have a hope in your spirit because you have life. The blessed hope in Titus 2.13 includes the freedom of the glory of the full sonship, the redemption of our body, the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, and the living hope of the incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in the heavens for us. God has given us good hope in grace. This hope is the hope of glory, which is the hope of the Lord's coming with resurrection and rapture. This good hope is in grace, which is the triune God processed to become the all-inclusive, life-giving spirit. Endurance issues from the hope of the Lord's coming back and is supported by it. Uh, are you aware, brother, of the need for endurance? Are you conscious of the need that this is critical? Uh, there, 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 are, there are few virtues that I'm aware of needing more than this. We need endurance. This is a long, hard race. And both the best and the worst are ahead of us as we near the end. I'm not prophesying doom, but Satan is not going to take lying down the coming in of the kingdom. And we need endurance that comes from hope. Hope is the source of endurance which involves suffering. See, let's admit it. 
Taking care of children involves suffering. We're not whining about it. We're not victims, but it's a fact. It's not easy. Your heart is pierced, cut, torn, broken in all kinds of ways. So we need such endurance which comes from the hope. We need to be trained first to work, then to labor, and eventually to endure. And I'm finding out that's the sweet sequence. You work and you labor, but sometimes you reach a point where you can't even work and labor. You just endure. You just wait. When John was on Patmos, was he working? Was he laboring? I don't think so. He was enduring there with hope, with faith, with love. With the endurance of hope, we wait for the coming back of the Son of God. Next verse, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the endurance of Christ. Isn't that a lovely verse? Let's read that together. The Lord We need a heart not only established, but under divine direction. As you know, I love Proverbs 21.1. I love this verse. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord as rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wills. Are you willing for the Lord to direct your heart concerning your children. Sometimes a father's heart, say for his daughter, is not under divine direction. So there can be quite a vacillation, quite an extreme. Sometimes you're just so loving and easygoing and everything is fine. A few days later, you're severe and strong and upholding your dignity in God's government. I, I don't think either one of these are signs of a heart directed by the Lord. In order for the Lord to direct our heart, He has to have access to the center of our affection, to our deepest feelings. And we men especially, we don't like anybody touching that. Well, how is the Lord going to make home in our hearts if He can't get into our affection, into our feelings? Can the Lord direct your heart concerning your wife? Recently I heard about a brother. He made an announcement to his wife. He said, I love you, but I just don't love you as a wife. Love you how? I don't know. Well, who is directing that heart? Is your heart under the Lord's direction? He directs it into the love of God. We talk about the reality of the kingdom. We want the reality of the kingdom. 
the reality of the kingdom has something to do with the king directing our hearts, ruling over all of our feelings. Remember in Leviticus 10, when Nadab and Abihu were judged for offering strange fire, what was the word given to Aaron? Do not uncover your head. Do not grieve. The anointing is on you. Ezekiel got a word. He said, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, I will take away from you the desire of your eyes. And then we're told, that evening my wife died. And the next verse says, in the morning I prophesied as I was commanded. In Thanksgiving of 1999, before the meeting on Saturday morning, we heard about the passing of Howard Higashi. And one of our dear brothers had to stand here for an hour and give the message in the ministry. And only after the meeting was over could we stand as one man and share the sad news that our brother was gone. We're not statues. We're not wooden. We're not stone. We're men full of feeling. We laugh, we cry, we grieve, we sorrow. We're down, we're up. But our heart isn't wild. In everything, there is a person in us, living, ruling, directing. When we grieve, we grieve as kings as God men. But our heart is directed. I love this. Lord, direct my heart into the love of God. Where is it directed? I don't know. And into the endurance of Christ. But my, you, you, you get a brother who's going through something, but he's altogether self-possessed. His being is under his own control. When he wants to withdraw and go into that cave, no one reaches him until after his hibernation he comes out. Well, who can interfere? But brother, your being isn't open. There are just, in some situations, I wish I could just call out, you're not open. Your spirit isn't open. Your heart isn't open. You don't know how closed you are. How can the Lord establish your heart? How can he direct your heart? You won't let him in there. Did something hurt you? Then let him heal you. Did someone betray you? Then let him restore your trust. But let him come there. Who will let the Lord settle down deep in our hearts? Especially deep in our most intimate affections. And that is for our own children. I think the brothers need to learn. Your wife loves you, but not as much as she loves her children. You have to know that and not be envious of that. And don't be immature about that, but that's the fact. 
those dear children came out from within her and she may love you but not in the way she loves them and when that feeling she has for them is touched that's a mama bear be careful well the lord himself in the gospels touched it some of us won't even let god touch our children we shield our children from god himself as if we were the real parent in this universe i had to learn this as i learn everything else the hard way by doing it wrong and having my own daughter perfect me to say stop protecting me this or that may happen to me stop protecting me dad what's the point the point is the lord has access into our heart to direct it into the love of god and into the endurance of christ the lord directs our hearts by the leading of the holy spirit through whom the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. The love of God in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 is our love for God that issues from the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. To have our hearts directed into the endurance of Christ is for us to endure with the endurance of Christ that we have enjoyed and experienced. We need to participate in the endurance of Christ that we may endure sufferings as he did to stand against Satan, the enemy of God. It's time to draw a line and to stand against Satan, the enemy of God and the enemy of our children. We have lost enough. We will stand against him at a cost. It will be a suffering. It will take endurance, but we will stand here. That's what Ephesians 6 says. Stand. Having done all, stand. We're not budging, Satan. We're not capitulating. You're not getting through. You're not gaining them. You cannot have them. We will not surrender them. We will fight for one another's sons and daughters with endurance, with a heart directed into the love of God and into the endurance of Christ, we will just stand here. And you will capitulate. You will retreat. We will resist you until you back off. That's what the Word says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need our resistance strengthened in all of our families. But this takes endurance and this takes love, both of which are Christ dispensed into us. And if you can't stand alone, call me and I'll stand with you. And if I can't stand alone, I'll call you. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say I can't bear this alone. I'm not going to try to be a hero, hold up in my house, pretending not to need the saints. We are facing a fierce enemy who is out to destroy us, and if he can't destroy us, he will destroy our young. One of those who took the lead in rebellion had my brother, had my 
had my daughter over to her house, was filling with all kinds of things, seducing her to rebel. But the Lord had mercy on her, and she got some healthy fellowship. We cannot be passive. We are in a war which is bringing us to the last point. We need to guard and protect faith, love, and hope as the basic structure of the genuine Christian life. We need to guard it ourselves, and we need to guard it in our young. The breastplate and helmet in 5.8 point to spiritual warfare. Even in an epistle to such a young church, Paul did not hold back this truth. We're at war. We're at war. You need a breastplate of faith and love covering and protecting your heart and spirit according to God's righteousness. The helmet is the hope of salvation covering and protecting our mind. Some of us need this helmet right now because the enemy injects thoughts into our minds, disguising them as our own. He sends fiery darts of unbelief and despair and hopelessness concerning ourselves. We need our mind covered with a helmet of the hope of salvation. Be careful, you attack my mind. Christ is my hope of salvation covering me. I will not take in the negative thought. I will not take in the self-destructive thought. I will not take in the unbelief. But our dear, precious children walking around with a bare head, with a fierce enemy, they need a helmet. We need to minister hope as a helmet to cover them and speak so many positive things. You have a reason to live. You have a glorious future. You were born to have a living hope. You were saved in hope. No, you may never be a starter in the football team. You may never get a scholarship to UC Berkeley. Do you think that matters to me? What matters to me is that you just be a normal God-man loving the Lord, living in the church, doing whatever God wants you to do in the course of this life. I know firsthand from recent experience, the enemy just bombards your head. And he fills you with thoughts of despair concerning yourself. We reject that. And I reject it on behalf of us all. We have a living hope. There is a hope in us, and this hope covers us, and this hope must cover all of our young. Our mind, emotion, will, conscience, heart, and spirit need to be protected so that our Christian life can be maintained. How many have we seen with a good start with such a heart when they were 14 or 15. But after a few years, it's not maintained. It's actually harder to maintain than it is to begin. And so we need protection. We need the intrinsic constitution, but we also need the covering. We need the protection. We need to be trained to pray protective prayers for all the children and young people in all the churches in the Lord's recovery, keeping watch over them. 
Lord, cover them today. We're not paranoid and we're not fearful, but we're watchful. And we're alert and we're sober. We're at war. I can't be with him there. I can't be with her there. Lord, cover my son's mind. Cover his whole being. Protect the faith, love, and hope that you are constituting into him. Faith is related to our will, a part of our heart, and to our conscience, a part of our spirit. So their being has to be protected. Their will has to be protected. Their conscience has to be protected. Love is related to our emotions, another part of our heart. Their emotion has to be protected. Their affection has to be protected. Their capacity to love and trust have to be protected. We can't let them walk around in a war zone uncovered. Then we wonder what happened. We've had enough casualties. Our loss does not have to become your loss. It doesn't have to be. We can learn from the loss of others a fundamental lesson. We're at war, we're an army, and we have armor, and we apply it by prayer over ourselves and over one another. The enemy is ruthless. The enemy is cruel. Here is a dear sister going through a grievous human loss. The enemy plays dirty. That's when he attacks, but we know he will attack. And we issue a preemptive strike. Lord, cover that sister day and night. Cover her. Hide her deep in the body. And we tell the enemy, you touch her. You touch me. You touch the whole body. But at least some of us have to have more growth that we're conscious of the war that we'll fight. It's desperate. Hope is related to our understanding, a function of our mind. So our dear young ones need their inner being protected by the faith and love that have been wrought into the church. They just have a little bit of faith, a little bit of love. They're young plants. They're young ones. They have a little bit of hope. They can be wiped out as Brother Lawrence helped us to see in his very good word this morning, wiped out in an instant. But the enemy cannot defeat us. The enemy cannot defeat the body. There is the breastplate of faith and love on the body of Christ, and we will all hide under it. There is the helmet of the hope of salvation worn by the body of Christ. We will all hide under it so that the precious being of these dear young ones is protected. We need to keep the spiritual virtues of faith, love, and hope covered and protected by fighting for them. Lord Jesus, Amen. how we need you Amen. to foster our faith, love, and hope so that we may foster the basic structure of the Christian life in all of our young ones. Amen. Lord, we now, we now enter into your name to pray for all the children and young people in the whole recovery worldwide. Amen. We're not just for our family or our church, 
or our area or our country. We're for the whole recovery. Lord, you are able to go.